You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jasper Waldenberg, a Haskell and Elm programmer at Maisha Meds, who's the author of the Elm Pair Programming Assistant. We start off talking about Elm Pair and then go on a variety of tangents about Vim, Nix, and software that makes the easy things easier but the hard things harder. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com slash jobs. And now, Vim and Nix. All right, Jasper, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so you've been working on this project called Elm Pair, which is, it's an approach to sort of an editing assistant, I guess, or like code writing assistant that I have not seen before. Do you want to describe it briefly for those who aren't familiar with it? Definitely. So uh, the idea is basically to offer IDE-like refactoring functionality. So something that I've implemented is renaming a variable, for instance. But where normally if you have like an IDE that allows you to do this sort of thing, you have either have a menu that you have to click through to go to the refactor functionality and you have to maybe fill in the old name and the new name of a variable or you have to right click on something and then find the refactor option in the menu there. Or you have to kind of know the shortcut for triggering the thing. The idea behind Elmpair is that sort of the queue that you want to refactor something is pretty clear, but just if people start doing something like that manually, they're going to one of the uses of the variable and then they're going to delete that and then write something else in its place. A smart enough system that's watching that could see, oh, I see what this person is trying to do. They're trying to rename this variable to something else. So why not just do it then? That's basically the idea by Elmpair. It kind of watches you as you write Elm code. And then if it detects you attempting to perform a certain refactor, it's just going to finish that for you. And hopefully it will do it correctly. And if not, then the goal is to just be one undo to, to get back. So yeah, that's that's the idea. Kind of functionality-wise, I there are many more refactors that I'd like to like to implement that aren't in the system yet. But uh that's the idea. If I could like summarize it, it's basically rather than you having to tell the the editor like what your intention is, like my intention is to rename this variable, you just edit the text and you change the variable name. And it says, oh, I see that you changed this variable name. I bet you want to rename that. Let me go change all the other instances of this variable name for you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's like after the fact assistance rather than like, yeah, you're having to tell it what you want. That's why the name Elmpair comes from that. It's kind of, uh, yeah, ideally it sort of feels a little bit like pairing with somebody and you're working on this thing together and the other side sort of understands what you're, what you're trying to do. Collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, this is really cool. Was there something that inspired this? Like, had you seen something? Because this is the first I've heard of a, of a sort of like after the fact assistance technique like this. Do you know of any other like, I don't know, prior art in this space? Yeah, so I don't really know. It's sometimes folks sort of consider it similar to, um, what's the name of the GitHub autopilot functionality? Oh, Copilot. I think that's a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, code completion wise. <laughs> And obviously, there's like kind of the, the 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 things that it helps you do are things that have been in IDEs for for ages. So that part isn't new. But yeah, this particular UI for approaching that, I uh, I haven't really seen it anywhere else. It's possible that it exists. Yeah, I definitely because I remember. Let's see. So my the first language I wrote was Basic, which did not. I guess technically it had an IDE kind of in that like it shipped with its own editor, like QBasic did. And then after that, I used Visual Basic, which was definitely an IDE. And then Java and C++, all of which were done in IDEs. But then at some point, I got into like dynamically typed languages, and I started using just like plain text editors. I think the first one I used was TextMate, if I remember right. 
and then later on sublime text and then Adam and VS code and Vim. And with all of those, like all the non IDEs, I just sort of totally lost my muscle memory for like the refactor rename button. It was, it was like, I would always just think about, well, I just want to think about how do I change the text that's on the screen to, to look the way that I want. Having something like this, I think would have been really nice for all those years <laughs> because like I, I didn't have, well, first of all, um, in a lot of those cases, I just, you know, before language server plugins and stuff, I didn't have access to like the opt-in to like refactor rename button. But also there's something to be said for the muscle memory of like, I'm just in the zone thinking about how I want the text to change and not having to think, oh, I need to press a special button here so that it changes in the right way and it like propagates my changes. Like, wouldn't it be nice if it just knew how to propagate my changes and I didn't have to tell it that that's what I wanted it to do? Yeah, it's maybe kind of what you described sort of makes me think of this. I don't know who coined this phrase I'm a Vim user myself, and I think you write a lot of Vim as well. You just mentioned the idea that if you get a little bit of practice with Vim, you can make edits at the speed of thought. This sounds very, very fancy. Kind of the idea that uh, you have, okay, I want the code to look like this. And uh, it's kind of muscle memory to get it that way with a couple of keystrokes. I think this is maybe some kind of, it fits that sense of working maybe and do even a little bit more, not just kind of rename Using Vim, Vim, Vim keyboard shortcuts alone, you might be able to change a single variable instance fairly quickly uh, by hitting a couple of keys. But then, yeah, doing the entire rename, that would be a little bit more difficult. But Elmpair would be able to, to do that to that bit as well. Yeah, I, speaking of Vim, I remember the first time I was convinced to try Vim, which was I had a coworker, it sort of been about a decade ago, I guess, who I, I respected his programming abilities. And he said that, Every time he learns something new in Vim, like how to do something new in Vim, it like pays for itself in terms of how long it took him to learn it, like within a week. And I was like, wow, that's like, if that's true, that's, that's a pretty, that's a good deal. <laughs> I mean, you could like, if you keep doing that, you know, long enough and like keep doing enough of those things, uh, you could really get a lot faster at stuff. I did a, uh, trying to remember what it was called. I think it was Vim tutorial. No, that can't be right. Uh, it was some sort of game. Somebody's going to remember the name of this. If you, if you don't know the name of it, I'm totally blanking on what it's called. But you basically, it's it's like a 2D game where you walk around using Vim commands and you, you sort of have to solve puzzles where like in order to like jump across the like lava pool or something, you have to like jump to the like the, the right words and use like the minimal number of Vim commands to get there. And it like gets, you know, progressively like it introduces you to new vim commands as you go and then like the puzzles get harder and you have to use the commands you've learned it was it was it was really fun i went through the whole thing and that was kind of how i got into vim but basically i think what he said about you know it, it pays off within a week like i think that's been pretty true in my experience one frustration that i've had with vim is that like vim's really good for editing text and there are always like vim plugins for other non-Vim like systems and their varying degrees of quality. I've always had a frustration with Vim though around two things. One is the just the fact that it's limited to like it can't do pixels. It can just do characters. That's like the smallest unit of UI. So there's like a ceiling on how nice the UI can look, which is a little bit frustrating. And the other thing is that the plugin ecosystem, while it's quite extensive, Oftentimes I found like things don't quite work well with one another to the degree that I, I don't know, have found they, they seem to like work better in like VS code ecosystem, for example, but the like VS code Vim integration is like always 
not as good as actual Vim. So for the past like 10 years, I've had this cycle and every couple of years I'll, I'll, I'll be using Vim and then I'll just get really frustrated with something. I'll rage quit and go to like a VS code or an Atom <laughs> or a sublime text. And then I'll use that with it's like, you know, fake Vim integration. That's not quite as good as real Vim. And then eventually I'll get really fed up with that or with like how slow it is compared to Vim. And then I'll rage quit that and go back to Vim. And like every couple of years, I've been like swapping back and forth. Right now, I just, I just, if you're curious, just rage quit Vim and, and went to, back to VS Code. And I'm sure pretty soon I'll be back to Vim. But I don't know, like that, <laughs> that that's just like, I, at first it happened a couple of times. And I was like, I was like, well, maybe this time I'm going to stick with whichever one I ended up on. But it, like it, I don't know, it, it seems the cycle seems to repeat itself every few years. <laughs> yeah. Haven't quite the same experience, but I do. I have spent probably way too much time on on my configuration, and sometimes something doesn't quite work anymore. And now language servers are becoming all the rage, but I'm a little bit behind because I'm still not using using that as much. So maybe I need to look into figuring out how to get on board with that to get better better support for some of the programming that I do. That's going to take a while to. Uh, so it's nicer to, yeah, um, uh, it's not the best out-of-the-box experience. It takes a bunch of effort. The thing that got me most recently was I updated all my Vim plugins and suddenly like nothing worked. And I was like, I don't want to debug this. But also like I can't go back to the old way because there's there's no easy way to say like, oh, just roll back to like your previous config. It's not like Nix, you know. Maybe if I had all my Vim plugins in Nix somehow, I don't know if that's a thing you can do, but. Yeah, I do that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, if I'd had that set up, then maybe I would have been okay. But I mean, now I'm like repeatedly frustrated. Like it used to be that macros wouldn't work in or like not reliably enough to actually use them in VS Code's Vim. Now they do, which I was pleasantly surprised, like having come back. But there are still some some very like annoying paper cuts. Like if you do a search and you have Vim installed, like sometimes, and I haven't figured out exactly (laughs) what the issue is here to like work around it properly it's like you do a search and you i forget if like if if it's you click or you press escape some combination of things like you're just like i just want to leave i i found the thing i want it's on the screen it's right here i'm scrolled to where i want excellent just make the search bar go away and let me be right here and i'm like cool i press escape or whatever and suddenly it just jumps back to like the like where i was before i did the search i'm like no i was there (laughs) this is where i wanted to be and i was like is this just a VS code thing? And I tried uninstalling the Vim plugin and sure enough, no, it's, it's only with the Vim plugin installed that this happens. So this is exactly the type of thing that is like someday quite possibly going to make me rage quit and go back to Vim where searching just works. But I mean, this has just been like, I don't know. I know most people will just like pick one editor and stick with it for a long time, which I guess I do because it's like usually, you know, more than a year in between switching. But it's frustrating that there's no like one ecosystem that's just like, great at everything which i guess people would probably say that a lot of people would say that vs code is great at everything which i guess i don't know depending on it's just hard to give up all that like extra productivity like once you've learned vim (laughs) it's just like yeah i I write code faster now yeah well i don't know i like the idea of having kind of vim like keyboard shortcuts in, in more applications i have a browser now that kind of does that and my window manager so i feel that i think maybe that's kind of the the biggest benefit that i kind of in hindsight, see from, from trying out Vim and then sticking with it for a while is that I can do most of the work, not just in Vim, but anywhere with my keyboard now. Sometimes my arms are giving me a little bit of trouble. Uh, so I'm kind of 
happy for not having to use the mouse as much. But I'm, a bit, I'm a big fan of other applications also having having some nice uh, Vim like keyboard shortcuts. Speaking of which, I I don't know I don't know if this is something you want to talk about, but I know you're sort of working maybe on an editor for Rock, and I'm kind of wondering if, well, as a as a big Vim keyboard shortcut fan, if you're now I don't know getting more appreciation for the for the hard work of building Vim keyboard support for like an editor. That's a great question. So my current thinking on like Vim like bind key bindings in Rock is is basically not to do specifically Vim, but rather to try and take a look at like what Vim does well and try to see if there are ways to use the fact that it's a language specific editor to get that same type of speed but maybe in a way that's has a lower learning curve and yet gets you the same like speed of productivity once you learn it i'm thinking of like cocoon i don't know if you've looked into that at all like Mm -hmm. i know brian brian hicks is really into that but that's like another take on where like it's not exactly vim but it takes a lot of concepts from vim and kind of presents them in a different way so that you can in some cases, maybe do stuff even faster, which is very cool. I think that type of stuff is like pretty compelling. Like I think about a lot of the like operations that I do in Vim that that like speed things up. And a lot of them has to do with just like very quickly moving the cursor around the screen, like not having to like tap the arrow key a bunch of times or switch to the mouse and like, you know, highlight stuff. It's just being able to be like, oh, shift B, you know, like a couple of times or something like that or like you know, stuff like that. And just be like, oh, I I know where the cursor is going to jump to immediately. And my hope is that having an editor that's like aware of the structure of your code, like the expression boundaries and stuff like that, like usually that's what I want to jump to is like the next expression over or something like that. And I want to like edit the expression. I'm thinking about (laughs) like a, a frustration that I've often had with every IDE that's ever had this functionality is like in languages where for example, call functions with parentheses, like you say foo and then open paren, and then, you know, there's going to be a closed paren later. I am sure everybody who's listening to this has had this experience where there's some functionality for like auto parentheses. And what it actually means is auto syntax errors, because you're like in the middle of editing something and you type open paren and it's like, oh, you probably want to close paren right after this. It's like, no, I already got a closed paren. What are you, what are you doing? Like now I have two closed parens and my code won't compile. Why did you do that? You just, you just broke my code. Like stop. <laughs> like this happens to me all the time. It's, it's like, I, I have never, I, I can't think of an editor that I've ever used that's like had that functionality where it just worked 100% of the time and I could just totally rely on it. But it seems like, and maybe this is because I've never used like JetBrains MPS or something, but like it seems like if you have an editor that is actually aware of the structure of the code and is maybe like a structural editor or projectional editor or something like that, the editor is aware of more than just like, oh, I bet if you open a paren, you probably want to close paren. It's, it's more like, oh, well, I, I actually can see that there already is a closed paren here. So like you, you don't need that and stuff like that. So that would be my hope. You could get not just things like that for specifically the example of parentheses, but like in general, have the editor be aware of like the context of what you're doing and like where the cursor is. And and hopefully if it's good enough at using that information to give you a faster editing experience that the heuristic I've, I've always said I, I want to go for is like that the rock editor ends up being such a like productive experience that I, as a Vim user, still have a revealed preference for using it, even though it doesn't have Vim key bindings. We'll see if that's achievable, but that's that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> it sounds like a like a really nice, uh, ambitious uh, goal to, to shoot for. <laughs> yeah. Exciting. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a long ways out, but that's, that's where I want to set the target. <laughs> 
Okay, so so speaking of which, so uh, so you're developing like some editor tooling that sort of like is editor agnostic. It's just something that kind of like sits alongside your program and runs. We mentioned Nix very briefly earlier on. This is something that I have seen catching on more and more is this idea of just for arbitrary tooling. So whether it's Elmpair or like any kind of like developer tooling thing that you might need as part of your normal workflow that you want to have a next setup where it's like I've specified all the tools that go with this project. Like this is something we use at work. Like we have next for all of our dependencies. Like and this means that if somebody says, oh, uh, we've got this, you know, third party tool that we're using for building part of our application or for part of the normal development process. It's something you want to just have installed. You just update it in the next package and everybody on the team gets that. And everybody on the team gets that update. And it's quite nice. We've also been doing this on Rock. So on Rock, we have like a Next package that's like, or Next configuration that's like, here's all of our packages that we use for developing Rock. So that's like, here's the Rust version that we use. Here's the Zig version that we use, you know, all that good stuff. One thing that we recently got that I thought was pretty interesting is Anton found a way to integrate that into your, (laughs) specifically VS Code, but I think he also got it set up for like Vim and stuff, where I actually now launch VS Code when I'm working on Rock from our Next configuration from like Next Develop, which means that my VS Code is actually using the Rust version for like the Rust IDE features and like Rust Analyzer, the like LSP plugin from our Next stuff. So it's like basically just getting oh, nice. everything from there. Yeah, which is really cool because previously I'd had this like really annoying thing where it's like, oh, well, when I'm like building or testing or whatever, like my my Rock code, all of that's done from within Next Develop. And it's this nice sandbox environment where all the packages are, are in the right place. But then in my editor, it's like I have a I have a parallel system installation of Rust, you know, which the editor knows about. And now it's like, oh, wow, everything's from like within Next, which is really cool. I don't know if you've ever uh, gotten a setup like that going before. No, I've never kind of kind of bootstrapped an entire editor, which is interesting. I, I imagine there's many more things that you could do with that. Like, I don't know if you have like a custom plugin or something for develop for, for working on this project that you can then just also pull in there. I think maybe this is something that I've not ran into as much for personal projects. Like if you're running Vim, then I usually open Vim from inside the project directory where all the sort of tools are already available. So now Vim starts and it can find on its path all those tools as well because it's then forked when those when that stuff was available uh, from inside the project. But I, I know folks who have like for instance, if you use uh, Visual Studio Code and you have like a, a an icon in your tab bar that you click to open that application, it doesn't know about your project necessarily, and then that's a kind of an additional um, bottleneck that you need to set up. I haven't spent as much time looking looking into that, but uh, kind of the, the solution that you hit on that that sounds pretty sweet. Yeah, I, I now to be fair, I do have to actually launch VS Code from within the the shell, mm-hmm. like next developer to like yeah. type code and then you know. Um, there's also a separate thing. If you're getting VS code from Nix, I think by default, it wants to get all of its extensions from Nix too, but you can opt out of that. You can give it like a, a flag when it's starting up saying like, Hey, here, get them from this, this directory. And it'll use that. I think I've used that as well for testing the Elm pair extension for VS code. Yeah. To be able to bundle that as a, as a plugin and then launch a, a VS code containing that extension to test it out. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's a weirdly, um, it's it's a it's a surprisingly challenging thing to try and get an environment where everybody like actually is getting the same versions of everything. Like before we switched to Next, 
I mean, we would just spend a ton of time in Zulip, our chat server for Rock, just helping beginners out with like, they'd run something and they'd get an error. It's like, oh, okay, what version of Rust do you have installed? What version of, of Zig do you have installed? What, you know, and like, there was just a lot of like, manual time spent like helping out beginners like trying to build you know rock from source and now it's just like hey can can you try use the next version and then people are like oh cool it's it's there right oh that's good it's not that you're now helping out how beginners with nix problems because that that's also something i can see happen well to be fair An anton wrote successfully wrote like enough straightforward instructions that people seem to be able to follow it pretty well so, you know, kudos to him. But also, like, I mean, another thing I, I forgot to mention is it's not just like tooling, but it's also like C libraries. Uh, like, that's a that's a common thing. That's like, oh, you don't have lib, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, oh, well, we just add it to next and now everybody gets it. That can also happen. I, I've, I've heard people say, by the way, that, oh, you don't need language specific package managers because you have stuff like Nix and Geeks and OS package managers. Why don't you just use those? I could not disagree more. I have completely like don't agree with that at all. Like basically what I found is that like like for example Rust has its own package manager. But you'd never know that because if you have Rust installed, like you know when beginners are getting set up, they just build the thing and Rust, you know, takes care of all, all getting all those dependencies. It's great. <laughs> I love that I don't have to like help beginners out with that or like separately edit our like Nix config so that it can pull in these C libraries. Like maybe sometimes, maybe not, depending on whether you already have it on your system. Like sometimes it may or may not reproduce because it magically happens to be there. It's so much better to just have like, oh, like Russ is going to take care of all of its own dependencies. So that's solved. It's, it's like pre-done in the way that we want it to be done. I don't understand the like the argument of like, oh, well, we have these package managers. So why don't we just use them for everything? It's like, well, because the ergonomics are not good. <laughs> that's why not. Like it's it's much more ergonomic for like the language itself or like the the compiler itself or the package manager or whatever else for the for the particular language to to do all that itself now granted i can't see an argument for languages that don't have it built in like when you get rust you get everybody gets rust and cargo at the same time but i understand there's like multiple python package managers for example so i can see where that could be a headache but i don't know like elm just it's baked in you just you get elm you get the elm package manager you know that's not they're not a separate thing it's just part of the compiler to me, that seems like kind of clearly the way forward is just like, yep, languages want to have a way to get packages that are language specific and they should just ship with them. That seems fair. How do you feel when, when you start distributing the thing that you've built, like for instance, in Rust or whatever other language you use, and you want to distribute it to Nixos, for instance, then then for that, you just by the way that, that Nix is set up, you will need to rely on on the dependencies being available in Nix itself, I think. I see. So so you're saying like, let's say I've built a command line application in like Rust. How should I distribute that? Should I also distribute that like runnable binary through Cargo or, you know, like Rust's package manager? Or should I do that through like an OS-like thing? Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, <laughs> well, I, I can see arguments for both. I don't have as strong feelings about that. So the arguments I can see for doing it through the OS package manager is that, well, really, people who are installing this thing shouldn't know or care about Rust. It's just an implementation detail. It's like what people happen to build the thing in. So like, if I'm on Ubuntu, let's say, and I've got aptitude, like, I want to just be like, hey, I don't want to install R Rust and Cargo just to get your thing. Like, don't make me do that. I don't care about those things. Just let me install it through my OS package manager because 
you made it run on my OS. Let me just get it through my OS. That, that argument makes sense to me. On the other hand, I can also see the point that there is no single like cross OS, like sort of nice way to get arbitrary binaries. I guess Nix is the closest thing you could say, but it's not really optimized for that use case. It's not like a great, oh, everybody just just get Nix and this will be solved. Like I wouldn't say that. That's not that's not a, <laughs> a responsible claim to make. Given like the Nix onboarding experience and like the learning curve and all that. But basically, like, I think it would be great if somebody did make something that successfully took off that was basically just like a cross operating system, like binary repository that was just dead simple. And it was just like, oh, I can just go type. I mean, so there's Homebrew for Mac OS, I think is like a good example of this. But Homebrew is for Mac OS. It's not for like Linux and Windows. I think actually there might be a Linux version now, maybe. Oh, I've not heard of this. I think I heard something about that. Uh, Don't quote me on that. But, But basically... It would be nice if there was something that just everybody used. And like, especially if like all operating systems, if it was like a protocol or something, like all OSs just like had a way to do this. So you could just be like, oh, whatever system you're on, just run this command and you'll get it. You know, that would be awesome. I could totally see if somebody wanted to build that and successfully built that and somehow magically got operating systems to adopt it, (laughs) like by default, that'd be even better. That would be really cool. But I don't really see that happening anytime soon, to be honest, especially like with app stores. It almost seems like OSs are going the opposite direction where they each want to control like how stuff gets installed on all their machines more tightly than they have in the past. So I could see an argument for that. But as far as like, for example, having to install things through NPM means that like if you want to run this program, like I'm on, you know, a fresh, clean operating system install and I want to run this tool that happened to be builds in javascript i can't just possibly get that without installing npm first if i want to if i want to run this command line tool locally and granted in that case i can see a bit of an argument where it's like well okay but you need the runtime like you can't just have a .js file that your operating system knows how to execute that's not a thing like operating systems don't know how to do that they they need a runtime to be able to actually execute that and you could say well just bundle it up with the application just give me a you know <laughs> absolutely like a command line app that's like you know a couple hundred lines of javascript and then a couple million lines of an entire javascript engine that's your compiled binary and however many megabytes that takes or gigabytes depending i guess there's some languages that work that way like haskell's maybe an example that bundles its runtime in the in the binary that it produces uh, sure but it's not but the haskell is like Haskell compiles the source code to machine code and then bundles a runtime along with that. It doesn't have to bundle an entire source code interpreter along with it like JavaScript does. And a JIT and all those all the other stuff, you know, that that comes with that. But I mean, that said, I mean, maybe that's something that people could like work on is like trying to make a like really compact JavaScript interpreter that, you know, maybe is not optimized for like the same kinds of use cases that you find in the browser or something like that but it's optimized for just like really small file size and you kind of figure like well the interpretive performance is going to be close enough to what you'd get if you ran it on like v8 or javascript core or something like that but it's going to be you know the runtime is way smaller there's a recent news about bun like coming out that's like that's not bun selling point as far as i understand it it's not like the problem that it's trying to solve but it is pretty cool just to like think that like oh yeah people could come up with like more runtimes although to me what's much cooler is the idea that we can come up with programming languages that mean that we like can do stuff like this with hopefully even better ergonomics and not need to distribute entire like javascript runtimes like to me i I would love it to live in a world where like distributing javascript runtimes like electron does and stuff like that is just not a problem people have anymore because it's like oh that's not 
that's not what we use JavaScript for anymore. <laughs> yeah. It is kind of strange how JavaScript has become this ubiquitous thing. I mean, they're, they're like of all the programming languages that came out in 1995, which what is it? Ruby, JavaScript, and Java all came out in the year 1995, exactly. And all three of them ended up being very successful. I think if you went back to 1995 and looked at those three languages and were like, try to predict which of these three is going to be the huge, like the one that like takes over the world and becomes like the the language that people consider like the lingua franca of programming where like everybody knows it and like everybody uses it. And it's like, really? That one? That's the one <laughs> of those three? <laughs> Like Java has like, you know, at least at the time, like had a, had a much stronger pitch for being like an industrial strength language. It was like write once run anywhere, static types, object orientation, like all the way down. Ruby again, like also super object oriented, which was like super hot in the 90s, more object oriented than Python. That was like one of Matt's goals and like dynamics, all, all the dynamic typing. It's like a totally different take on it from Java. It's like designed to be really fun. And then JavaScript is like, I'm for running tiny scripts in this new browser thingy that nobody uses yet because it's 1995. And if they do, it's like on a dial-up connection and like they can access like the tiny, you know, web that exists so far <laughs> at really slow speeds. It is a bit weird, but also just from my own sort of perspective, how I started, I started programming with JavaScript just as a hobby. Then I got a job writing sort of front-end code with JavaScript. So I sort of understand that appeal from it. And then once I was writing JavaScript and I got really interested in coding, I wanted to write other kinds of applications as well. And so then Node.js was sort of a, an obvious thing to want to check out and, and experiment with. Barrier to entry, super low. <laughs> yeah. And Java applets, for instance, just, just annoyed me in those times. Oh, so, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe, they had, yeah, barrier to entry. Maybe that's the explanation. I mean, there's actually like relates quite quite a lot to the distribution conversation we were having like a second ago right like you didn't have to install anything to to be able to write javascript you just like you already had your web browser and so you could just like start using it i'm reminded of evan has this great talk called let's be mainstream and one of the things he talks about is like barrier to entry for like how how hard it is to like get started with a language and he talks about like in a lot of languages you have to like install this whole thing and then like boot it up or whatever and like you know get things going and he's like here's how long it takes you to get started in javascript ready ready and he just like brings up the console in the browser he's already got open for for his presentation <laughs> he's like there it is i'm writing javascript like it's like he's like if this is so easy to get into it it like if this were a business there would be like anti-competitiveness lawsuits against it because like, it's like cheating it's so easy to get into which is it's totally true i mean it browsers are ubiquitous therefore javascript is ubiquitous you, you could not be easier to get into and in terms of like installation procedure that is yeah it's also just something that elm does amazingly well well it's not as easy as javascript to to get typing i guess but everything else about about onboarding onto elm is just so nicely thought out yeah i mean elm, elm sets the bar for a number of things i think <laughs> I went to a meetup, this was years ago, pre-pandemic, in, in the before times, and somebody at the meetup was presenting about Rust, and I now have a lot of experience with Rust and Elm, and they were commenting that like Cargo is like the nicest package manager I've ever used. And I remember thinking, oh, this is a nice way of saying I've never used Elm's package manager, because like Cargo is, is nice, but like, I mean, I mean, if you've used both, it's, it's not even close. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Elm. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we can someday get Rock to be like that that same level of quality of uh, user experience and, you know, ideally even improve it because 
it's not like everything, anything is perfect, but it's a very high bar <laughs> to, to hit. Yeah, I, I like that aspect of the sort of design goal for Rock as well. Love to start using that as well. It's something for Nix that I'm, I, I would really love to get Nix itself, or maybe Nix itself is never going to get there, or kind of some sort of similar tool to adopt that as well. I have no idea what it would look like, but yeah, that would be really great to have something that combines that possibility with, I don't know, makes it uh, much, much easier to get started with it. Yeah, just in, just in general, right? Like having more programming tools that are easier to get started with. But also, I want to note that there is definitely something that I've gotten wary of, which is things that their whole selling point is that they're really easy to get started with. And suspiciously absent is like considerations of what, what happens after you've been using this thing for a long time. So I've definitely gotten burned many times in my career too many times in my career by something that has a great pitch and it's like it's just got this beautiful tutorial and these like really compelling examples and i'm like wow i can't wait to like dive in and use this thing and then i get into it and i start using it and then i adopt it and i've committed to it and then like a couple months in i'm like this is a disaster this is so like this thing that was like so cool at the beginning and made made like such a really good first impression actually has like a ton of problems at scale or it has like this it, it's very easy to make a gigantic mess if you keep using this pattern like the tutorial suggests you should and actually when you get into it it's like actually well you shouldn't do it that way really like actually you should do it this other way that's much less nice because otherwise you're going to run into these problems but it's like that's not what the pitch was you know so i i've gotten increasingly like the number one flag for me the the thing that i've noticed like really strongly correlates with this is when like a library or a framework or whatever is pitching reduces boilerplate whenever it says like that's like and i'm not saying that like i'm like i want the opposite i want something that says it increases boilerplate i'm not saying that but i am saying that if that's like a major part of the pitch is that like what what the problem that this thing solves is that it reduces boilerplate i have found way too many times that what that actually means is we just decided to ignore edge cases and if you ignore these edge cases, then check it out. You can write things more concisely. Now, the edge cases will come back to bite you in extremely painful ways later because they're still there. I just chose to ignore them, but I'm not going to tell you about that. Uh, that has happened to me so many times that I, I'm now just like, whenever a project is like, this thing, check it out. It reduces boilerplate. I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm, I'm, no, no. <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And I'm probably missing out on some things which are just choosing to market themselves that way, even though they're nicely designed and like think about edge cases in the long term in addition to the short term. But it's just like, you know, fool me N plus one times, shame on me. I'm, you know, I, I'm just like, I'm just like literally repulsed by by that marketing now. Yeah, this, I don't know. I guess certain designs that make the sort of easy tasks easier and the harder tasks even harder. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's like, check out, we made the easy stuff easier. I'm like, oh, that's nice. I like it when things are easier. And it's like, but also we made the hard stuff a lot harder. <laughs> but that's not said. But that's much harder to, to see from the documentation, whether that might be, might be the case. And, and to be fair, like, I, I, I'm probably being uncharitable here because probably what's happening is in, in most of these cases, if not all, is just that 
whoever is behind the library or the framework or whatever doesn't realize that that's that that's what they've done they don't realize that they made the hard stuff harder they just think that they made you know some of the stuff easier and they're like success and they didn't realize the the implications of that but i mean yeah i I, i've talked to a number of people over the years who have had similar experiences and i'm not i'm very carefully not mentioning anything by name here but (laughs) but like i mean it's it's a common thing that like people you know start off being very happy with a technology and then over time become frustrated with it and all of the things that were frustrating about it were like there from day one they just were not communicated and actually something i've been trying to do with rock or, or like trying to like figure out how to do effectively is there are some things where i'm like i am aware of these trade-offs and it's like this is something where i mean hopefully if it's hopefully it's nothing of the form like you're going to end up in a total disaster and you're going to be really unhappy you know later on but like for example we have this whole like platforms and applications design without going into a whole long tangent about how that works one of the trade-offs that it makes is that it allows you to have very strong security guarantees but this does mean that you don't get synchronous ffi so for example if i'm like i want to introduce a like new c function that like I, do, I need to call some C code, some arbitrary C code for my application. Mm-hmm. There are potential ways you can do that depending on which platform you've got. And if you really absolutely need it, you can fork the platform that you're working on and get it that way. That's definitely an option. But what you cannot do is you cannot call it synchronously because that's potentially side affecting, potentially you know memory corrupting. There's all sorts of things that arbitrary C code can do. So there's there's somewhat of a sandbox there. I don't say something. There's, there's quite a sandbox there. So because of that, that has trade-offs. Um, on the one hand, it means that code should be a lot more reliable generally than languages that have arbitrary FFI. Quick tangent, I was wondering how the Beam did this, like the Erlang VM, because I know that it has a really great reputation for like stability and like just being rock solid and like never going down and having downtime. And I was watching a talk by, I want to say it was Robert Verding, one of the, the people who like the, the original creators of the beam. And he was talking about how the uh, the beam is like actually implemented. And the specific thing I was wondering was like, how do they deal with CFFI? Because I know that Erlang has CFFI. And I was like, how do they deal with like, what if that code like seg faults? Or what if it corrupts memory? Like, do they have this like really serious like process isolation? Like, how are they doing that? Because I know that like Erlang quote unquote processes are not operating system processes. So they don't have it that way. So like, how are they doing that? <laughs> and I was like, honestly, kind of disappointed because it, uh, at some point in the talk, he explains it. And he's basically like, yeah, if you're doing this, like all bets are off. Like you can seg fault, you can crash the whole VM. Like just be very careful if you're calling arbitrary C code. I was like, oh, <laughs> which, which makes sense. Cause I, I was like, I literally can't think of how they would be doing this, you know, without OS level processes. You're kind of hoping that they had this immediate, this great solution that you could then steal. <laughs> right. That there was this like really cool solution out there. But it's like, yeah. no, 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 there's not, there's not, there are ways you can do it. But like, like, you know, isolating it in its own operating system process, but at very high performance costs. So like, there's a reason that people don't do that. And so Rock doesn't do it that way either. But basically, I was aware of this trade off from like very early days. And I want to hopefully like successfully communicate that to people because I would feel bad if somebody got a significant part of the way into a Rock project, kind of assuming that they would like have that as in like escape hatch, which plenty of languages do have. And then they get part of the way through and they're like, oh, it's not a problem because we can use any like, I don't know, I'm going to say like a cryptography algorithm for like, uh, you know, signing things or something. And they're like, oh, nobody's written a rock version of that yet. That's okay, because I can just pull lib whatever off the shelf and just call that in the middle of my thing. It's like, well, you can pull it off the shelf, but you cannot just call it in the middle of your thing. There's going to be more to it than that. And that might not work for your use case or might be really unergonomic for your use case. 
that's just like a hard require. Like you can't have both. You can't have that be really ergonomic and the safety guarantees that we have. You have to pick one and I'm picking the safety guarantees. So from my perspective, I, I would hopefully like to be able to sort of like convey that effectively to people. And like, you know, it's it's like you have to find a way to c- convey it because you can't just like make it part of the pitch. Like the pitch can't be, check this out. Also, here's a very long laundry list of disclaimers of things you might run into someday. Like that's not, it's not a pitch anymore <laughs> if it's like that. But something where like, you know, somehow find a way to convey that like early on so that people aren't surprised by it later. Below the features, the, the anti-features, uh, stuff they explicitly can't do, uh, yeah. Yeah, like, like trade-offs, right? I have thought about like someday, you know, despite my best efforts, Rock will get on Hacker News. And at that point, there's a lot of like things that I can just like very, with a very high degree of confidence, anticipate that people will say about it. <laughs> First of all, I, like I, I've also thought about just doing at some point, I probably should do this because it'd be fun, is just like a Hacker News comments about a new programming language bingo card. And it just it just contains like all of the cliches that people always say, such as like, oh, this is basically just X, right? Where X is like something that already exists or like, oh, God, another new programming language. Why do we need this? What, you know, COBOL should be good enough for everyone, right? It's like the natural implication of that, except it's, of course, they don't say that about COBOL. They're like exactly the languages that we have right now. We nailed it. Like we're, yeah, we're done. This one that I'm using, that's the best one. The right. Other yeah. 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 It's like. By sheer coincidence, we happen to be living in the exact time where we just we got it right, and and we never there will never be any worthwhile improvements to programming languages after this exact period that we're living in right now, you know stuff like that, right? Uh, but there's also some like language specific ones, like I'm sure that some people will say, oh, there's no higher kind of types, and like which there aren't, and I, I wrote an FAQ entry about why there aren't, and like it was a very considered you know decision, but I, I have found that like oftentimes when people complain about a language not having higher kinded types like in Elm or in Rust, for example, the word choice that they use is often also kind of predictable where they'll say it like it lacks sufficient abstractions or it's like it's bereft of abstractions. It's just like uh, it, it's always about like it's deficient in this particular way that it can't abstract hard enough. Like nobody says like, well, it, it doesn't have this feature, which I like, you know, which, which sometimes people will say about like, like string interpolation, you can say like, oh, this language doesn't have built-in string interpolation. I don't like that because I like string interpolation. For some reason, when it comes to like higher kinded types or like arbitrary rank types, but more more higher kinded types, the, the, the word choice people use is just like weirdly different, but in, in like kind of a predictable way. So I don't know. It, it'd be kind of fun to like call the shot and just be like, here's some hacker news comments. You know, when you see one, link, link, link them to this, you know, <laughs> pre-done thing. But I don't know. I... I I probably won't bother to do that, but it kind of like amuses me to think about it. I'd love a bingo card. I'll I'll play. <laughs> sounds sounds great. Yeah, I mean, like you could do it like anytime any new language comes out. Like some of it, you know, is is like language specific, but the definitely somebody's going to say, you know, why do we need another programming language? Definitely somebody's going to say, isn't this just X existing language? You know, stuff like that. Which I don't know. Like I understand that you know people have reactions to things, and they'll just like you know post what they're thinking about but i have to wonder like ha- has nobody read the comments on like any previous languages that have come out that like you know been on hacker news like that's you got to know that what you're saying is like not at all original it's it's been said not only before but every single time like this has happened before <laughs> it's just it's like it's beyond not adding anything new to the conversation but like i i don't know people like to express themselves i guess yeah Folks take it weirdly personal sometimes, this sort of stuff. So, yeah, you don't have to like it or even use it. If you're happy doing what you do, then 
don't change anything. Seems fine. I don't know. Yeah, I don't entirely get it either. I always liked uh, like Evan's Evan's response to like a, a very early question that people had asked is like, "Hey, what should we call ourselves as Elm Elm programmers? Should we say like we're Elmers or Elmists or Arborists or or what? You know what what should we call ourselves?" And Evan was like, "How about just Elm programmers? Because like we shouldn't build identities around our tools." Like they're just tools. Like if you use Elm, then you're an Elm programmer because you program with Elm sometimes, but maybe not all the time. And that's fine. Cause like, you know, I always like that, but at the same time, I also like, it's kind of fun to like make up names. And also like in the case of rock, like, come on, rockers is like, that's, that's great. <laughs> I, I agree with Evan philosophically on that completely, but at the same time, it's just like such a great pun. I just, I just, I just want to use it. The name just doesn't allow it. I mean, yeah. I, right. I, I, my hands are tied on, on that. Exactly. You know? <laughs> it's like a nice idea, but in this case, it just don't work. Yeah. It's, too bad. it's just, it's just not, not feasible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jasper, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, is there anything else we should talk about before we uh, wrap up? Yeah, nothing comes to mind. It was fun talking to you. Thank you for having me. I've been enjoying the podcast a lot, listening to it. So it's been great to be invited. Thank you. Well, thank you. And, I, and I've enjoyed this conversation. I'll, I'll see you around.